welcome back and thanks for tuning in to Oil & Gas Onshore, where I am on a relentless pursuit to bring value, unity, and information to the energy industry one conversation at a time. So sit back, relax, and remember that even this very device you're listening on requires some form of hydrocarbon. This episode is brought to you by our new sponsor for the Oil & Gas Onshore podcast. A big shout out to Technip FMC, a company who truly represents the future of the oil and gas industry. Hey everyone, look, not only do you get awesome weekly content by listening, now you've got a chance to win some serious swag brought to you by Technip FMC. Each week, one lucky listener will win a bundle of gear, which includes everything I'm about to list. Seriously, everything. An audio duffel bag, a Yeti tumbler, an executive power bank power charger, a Columbia neck gator, and a set of Ace Pods 2.0, which are the true wireless Bluetooth earbuds. All you got to do is click the link in the show notes and enter your information to win. Simple. Now go get your swag on. All right. Welcome to this week's episode. We're here with Tim Powell, head of America's at the Oil and Gas Council. How are you doing today, Tim? I'm good, Justin. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no problem. Something that's not, you know, we, we just literally talked about LinkedIn and something that's not on there, at least I didn't notice is, is I'm sitting here with a fellow podcast host. Am I not? Yeah, no, it's fun. I've been doing the podcast thing since March and you and, and a few others I've been introduced to. So I guess I'm a podcaster now. It's a new circle and I'm, I'm happy to be a part of it. Yeah, well, it's funny. So a big shout out to Armin Paraday, who is over at Inside Petroleum. I had him on. If anyone's listening to this episode, you would have heard Armin on the last one. He actually is the one who introduced us. So a big shout out to Armin. He is just such a good guy. His attitude and his charisma and his just his personality is so contagious. So I don't know if anyone else out there has the pleasure of knowing Armin, but you obviously do. How did you get connected with him? Well, so it's kind of what Oil and Gas Council does. We work with different groups and help them on the business development front. And we've connected recently, him and his partner, Jeremy. And I really enjoyed working with them. I mean, something I'm happy to kind of chat about just at a high level, entrepreneurship. Yeah. It's something I wouldn't call myself a purebred entrepreneur, but I have entrepreneurial tendencies for sure. And just from a content perspective, I love it. I could sit there, you know, at the bar, sipping on a beer, listen to someone talk about entrepreneurship all day yeah. long. And Armand is is that. And he hustles and it's been fun working with him for sure. They're doing great things over there. Yeah, he is the epitome of entrepreneurship. And the thing is, is I think in knowing him just for that brief moment of time, his passion is not... I want to go make money. It's like, I truly love the process of entrepreneurship and business and providing solutions and just, just the whole world of it. And I think, you know, talking about entrepreneurship, and I think that's one thing now that's been, you know, even through this COVID quarantine thing is like, there's been a lot of hype around entrepreneurship and granted it's so easy now with the, you could literally start a company on your phone in a matter of hours and start generating content for a business. And I think a lot of people have really, and maybe not on the oil and gas side, although I'm sure lots have failed as well, but I think there's a lot of entrepreneurs out there versus entrepreneurs. And it's interesting. And so you, you said, you know, that's something that you're passionate about or something that obviously is a keen interest of yours. Has it always been like that? I mean, did you grow up in an entrepreneurial family? I mean, what, what did that look like? Bring us back to the early days of Tim and, and what that looks like. Yeah. So one, you hit the nail on the head. You got to love the process. And that's, I think, if you talk to any real entrepreneur, and I'm kind of a blend of 
if you get into business archetypes, an artist and an entrepreneur, where an artist, I think some people confuse entrepreneurship with an artist. You know, a pure entrepreneur will, you know, build something up and they'll sell it tomorrow if they get the right price. If yeah. it's your baby and, you know, it's everything, you put your blood, sweat and tears into it and you, you're romantic about it. Yeah, that's a bit of a blend. I kind of fall in that category, right? I mean, if everything I do with Oil and Gas Council, you know, I treat it as if it was my own company. It's not. But yeah, you love the process and the business and the clients. And if I could do this business model in healthcare or in something else, I'd be like, eh, no, no gracias, right? It's, yeah. I just love what I'm doing and you, you fall in love with that. And that's, it is very much the process, right? I don't, you know, wake up at, four in the morning sometimes and you know work till midnight and travel all over because I just have my eye on the dollar signs. It, it, right. it very much is you enjoy everything you're doing along the way and, mm-hmm. and what comes with that. And yeah, so taking a step back, is my family entrepreneurial? So there's a family business outside of oil and gas. I'm not involved in it. My grandfather, 100% was an entrepreneur. I mean, he tells stories of back in the early days. It's a direct mail company who's that's evolved into a more of a technology company in the direct mail space but very very early days it was it was a computer company just to keep it simple for everyone listening yeah and those stories about snowstorms caving the roof in new york and people are working in the middle of you know piles of snow and i think the first money he got raised for his company he got a bunch of broken computers like he bought them for pennies on the dollar they weren't working and he had his wife and all the friends from the neighborhood he rented a room put these computers in the room and they were type pretending to type on these computers like see <laughs> we got a full-on operation and he you no know it's, it's a little bit of yeah i could never do that ethically <laughs> right I, I i wouldn't be able to sleep at night but that is so I mean, funny he came from nothing right and he yeah. had to he's like he had the, the business vision and so he presented it as, you know, yeah, we're, we're up and running. We have full capacity. We're doing this and that. And, and I just <laughs> think to myself, and I go, wow, you know, you got to have some stones to do something like that. And it was just yeah. always payroll <laughs> and, and hustling. And, and it takes a certain type of stomach to be able to do that and rub two sticks together and, and make something happen. Yeah. The skill sets that my uncle and my father have, my father's married into the family. My grandfather was my mother's father, and then her brother is my uncle. Him and my dad co-run the business now since my grandfather retired about 10 years ago. They have a certain skill set that takes the business to the next level, which my grandfather never could. Whereas I don't think my uncle, my father could ever done the things my grandfather did to grow it and make it survive in those early years. They've scaled it, put in processes, and have brought entrepreneurial spirit to a company to evolve it and grow it. I mean, company's almost around for 50 years. This is the first, Justin, you're a younger guy like me. This is the first downturn that's really hit me in the mouth. And you hear about it, right? Well, there's a down cycle every 10 years. And you know, you, you'll see, right? The economy goes down and things get, ch- get challenging. And a lot of businesses go under as a result. Their competitors come in, disruption. And I always thought to myself, yeah, 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 you know, it's all about hard work. It's all about hard work. If you put your head down and you grind, then you can always survive. Right. 
And I was like, how much worse can it get, right? Like with oil price, the oil price crash in 2014, 16, it's not like things have been rosy for us in the oil and gas space and we continue to grow. So I'm like, that's proof, right? I mean, yeah, it's not a macro depression in the economy, but within the industry, it's been tough and just grinding hard work and innovation. Yeah. And, you know, in our business, oil and gas council, taking a step back, we put on events in the oil and gas business. So you want to talk about a double whammy. You got COVID-19, which banned events, which I'd never thought my wildest dreams would ever happen. So your, your main product offering is banned. So that's a challenge. And then the oil price war happens. So your banned product is now in one of the industries that's been, you know, completely decimated. Yeah. So that has been from, a, you want, want to tie it back to entrepreneurship, really incredible learning experience. And you really have to you know, look yourself in the mirror and say, okay, here was my plan. Let me rip it up, throw it to the side. Now what? And part of me loves that though. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because I, and I think that's a common denominator amongst entrepreneurs who do well is while no one wants to get punched in the mouth and have everything taken away from them, they almost like thrive off that being a possibility because then they can rebuild. Like they just love creating and building and the chaos breeds innovation for those who really can pursue, you know, getting over the fact that in the short run, you may be in the shit, but for the most part, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll survive and you'll get through it. And, and again, that just separates, I think from, you know, the good to, from the great, but it's funny, you know, like you kind of mentioned your family there. Like I grew up in an entrepreneurial family, especially my dad. I'll just tell a short story with him. It's just, he was always looking for the build and flip. Like that was his thing. And while he had a family business that, you know, really put food on the table, he was always looking to, you know, whether it was commercial real estate or vehicles or houses, he always just loved getting things, fixing them up and selling them. And he'd come home with ve- like two vehicles out of nowhere that he would somehow, he'd be at a gas station and he'd see a vehicle that he thought had potential to flip. And he would convince the person that they needed to sell it to him because that vehicle was about to, he, he would, he would listen. He's yeah, I, I think something's wrong with your vehicle. And people would look at him and say, well, what do you mean? He's like, yeah, it's probably going to cost you more than the vehicle's worth. I'll buy it from you today for X amount of dollars. And I tell you what, man, nine out of 10 times, he would end up having the keys. And this was back in the day where you could just, you could do that. But yeah, just constantly looking for that next deal and, and then just, just a hustler. He's a purebred entrepreneur, right? Like he sees a car, he sees a piece of property or something. He just figures out how to add value and make money off of it. I love it. Yeah. Oh yeah. It just, it was amazing. And as a child growing up, you think it's normal. Like just like, oh, there's dad doing his thing again. But now when I grow up and, you know, unfortunately he's not around today, but now at this point in my life, I'm like, wow, I just wish I could pick his brain about some of this stuff and, and what, you know, and I picked up on a lot of that and I don't think I'm wired necessarily exactly like that. However, I think I, through growing up in that environment, I understand how the game works, <laughs> but it's amazing to see folks that have that level of skill and gift to be able to create and, and like you said, just literally add value out of nowhere and convince people that that's what's needed. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, want to know what's really cool, you know, we're on a podcast right now. I'm a huge podcast consumer. It's just, you know, my grandfather, bringing it back to him, he was always like, Tim, you should read more. You should read more. And I always felt bad about it, but it was, it was always just, I would pour my energy and time into other things. It wasn't like I was a couch potato. And then with travel and everything, 
And I always felt bad. I'm like, God, I should read more. Like, am I like doing a disservice to my brain or uh, I don't know. Right. And then podcast <laughs> came out and I'm just, I consume this information all the time. And, you know, living out in Katy, Texas, you know, 40, 50 minutes to go to a meeting downtown. And that, that's an hour and a half of consuming some really good stuff. Sometimes I'll listen to comedians podcasts and you just, you switch off a little bit and you just want some entertainment. But a lot of times, one of my favorite podcasts is the Daily V audio experience with Gary Vaynerchuk. Yeah. Yeah. Purebred entrepreneur. I'm from New York. So he's kind of that raw New Yorker guy, curses a lot, just kind of speaks to my upbringing a bit. Not that my parents curse all the time, but... Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, his business language. I, I love it, the way he communicates. And you know, Donald Miller, Tony Robbins, just all these guys. It's just incredible content out there. And so you go back to, I wish I could sit down and share a drink with my, my dad and pick his brain. You know, unfortunately, you can't do that, but you can pick the brain of a lot of other entrepreneurs out there where you didn't have that voice before. So it's, it's cool. And I, that, mm -hmm. that's what I love, right? Yeah. It's just creating that virtual peer group in a way. Yeah, no, it is. And thank goodness for technology. I mean, the ability to do that and really get into the minds of some of these masterminds, for lack of better words, is, is, it's amazing and certainly interesting to, you know, get into the podcast space. And I mean, I've not necessarily had folks like Gary Vee on, but I think there's some folks within my network that I've had on that have certainly added value in that mind for people that, you know, find what they do extremely interesting. And so, you know, I'm sure some of that will happen today even. But before we get going, Tim, I just want to take a brief moment to tell everyone about some fascinating technology provided by our sponsor, which is Technip FMC. Their FrackNow system eliminates red zone intervention, delivering a more secure work environment that significantly reduces the chance of human error. They make the frack pad safer, faster, and smarter by enabling visual validation from a distance. Their simplified ecosystem also promotes a healthier environment, reducing emissions through a 43% reduction in logistics. Find out more by clicking the link in the show notes. So yeah, thanks for the break there. So you mentioned you live in Katy, but you're, so you're originally from New York. And it, at first, I couldn't figure out if it was New Orleans accent or if it was a New York accent. So interestingly yeah. enough, you're from up there. I mean, I'm from Canada. So, you know, a shout out to my northern brother, but grew up in New York and then you came down to Texas or what? Tell us yeah, so what I'll, happened. <laughs> I'll kind of give a quick background on the full story starting from when I was little. So yeah, grew up in a golfing family. And I remember how it all started. My mom was taking me to the junior golf clinic. I think I was six or seven. And for whatever reason, it got canceled. And she dropped me off. And she was in a rush that day. I think it was like two to five in the afternoon on a Tuesday. And I went to the range. And it was canceled. So no one was there. And I just sat there hitting balls for three hours. She picked me up and she's like, Tim, where is everybody? It's like, oh, mom, there was no class today. And then she was mortified. She's like, oh my God, I'm a terrible parent. You've been here all alone. Are you okay? <laughs> I was like, I had so much fun. Can I do it tomorrow? And from that moment on, I lived at the golf course. My dad would drop me off on the way to work, you know, anywhere between seven and eight in the morning. And I would stay there typically after dinner. So I would get picked up. I have memories Anyone's a golfer out there, you remember the Ruger Titanium Big Bertha driver. If you would hit a pebble and it was dark, it would spark and like light up the sky. I mean, I remember no lights just playing through the dark and I would get picked up eight, nine at night. And that was, that was my life, right? I was just, I would study, you know, workouts for, for golf. And at the time I was always so tall and skinny. I don't have any problem putting on weight these days, but 
I would <laughs> study special diets to add muscle mass. And, you know, I studied meditation and, you know, mental psychology. I was just all, all in. And my dream was to go professional, you know, be the white tiger, right? I mean, tiger was my role model. I mean, right when he was at his peak, that was when I was coming up. It was just so much fun to watch that guy and he changed golf. And so I played competitively all over and got recognized at the D1 level by a number of schools and ended up, I was lucky enough to get a scholarship to go to Rice University down in Houston. So that's how I got down to the Houston area. And you know, as, as the commercial goes, the NCAA, NCAA commercial goes, I went pro in something other than sports. I don't know if you ever saw that one, but <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't have the Tiger-like college career, but listen, it was an amazing experience. And you know, I still have my golf skills today, which have good business benefits and social benefits. But yeah, I was probably in my junior year of college and I realized that I'm not making it pro, right? I, I, I barely kind of travel on the golf team here at Rice and I'm contributing to marginal levels. So I got to, although I still love it, I got to start thinking about what I'm going to do after school. And I took a financial markets class and absolutely loved it. And I, I knew I was going to do something business related because of, you know, growing up with family, it just it was always in my mind, but didn't know where I was going to take that. Bryce didn't, doesn't have a, you know, a business major or you hear entrepreneurship majors now, which is a new thing at schools. They have an econ major, which is more broadly speaking, finance business. So I was an econ major and I took this financial markets class and I never forget there was like a live workshop on bubbles and financial markets and it just fascinated me. And I walked out and I said, I found it. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to become an investment banker. And so that was my fall semester of junior year. And I started, as I went home for Christmas, I started looking into internships and everything. And I was a little late to the party. A lot of kids who were going in the iBanking route had already started internships in the summer in their sophomore years and everything. So I was a little late there. And as I started to kind of snoop around and investigate, I found that a lot of the yeah, I had a three, four, five GPA, and you had to have a three, five GPA to even submit your resume to go to work for Bamel or Goldman or City or whoever it may be. So I couldn't even like get a chance to show my stuff, which was a weird. It was frustrating. Like we don't even get invited to the party. Yeah. And I remember so Bobby Tudor, who's the chairman of Tudor Pickering Holt, he is a Rice alum. When I was at school, he rebuilt the basketball and sports arena, now called Tudor Fieldhouse. So needless to say, this guy was a god, right? When I was at school, like <laughs> yeah. the name Bobby Tudor, everyone knows who it is, especially student athletes. And every, you know, every spring semester, the athletic department would hold alum, you know, a student athlete, alum, kind of networking type gathering to help students to transition into their careers. And so there was like booths or tables set up around the room with different alums, all successful in their own right. Unfortunately, you know, everyone was online for Bobby, everybody. And I remember standing on that line and I've always tried to do things a bit differently. I, something about doing it differently than everyone else always is like a feather in my cap. I just like it. And I got up there and I was like, Mr. Tudor, I'm not going to sit here and beg you for your job. I'm not going to be like everyone else who says, how do I get into TPH? But I do want to get into iBanking. And I feel like I'm a little late to the party. And what do I even do? I, like, I work harder than anybody else, but I can't even get a chance for an interview. And he was like, you need to forget banks like, like TPH? 
you need to go knock on doors. He goes, there are so many boutique banks. He goes, we're in Houston. We have a huge finance community. There are tons of banks out there. You just got to start reaching out to them and say, hey, I'll work for free. I want experience. I'm a smart kid from Rice. I'm just looking for an opportunity. So I, I go to class later that day and I Google investment bank Houston and up at the top of the Google search is CFAW Houston investment bank. So I click on it, look up the partners and the firm. I email him and he responds right when I was in class and he goes, Tim, great timing. We're letting go of our analysts in a week. Come in. I'd love to meet you. No, and I, I, I didn't have to call, call much. He, Guy name was Larry Rogers, still a friend today. And he had me in and he was like, so tell me about yourself. And, you know, oh, I, I play golf at Rice and I, I'd love to go into investment banking, learn the ropes. And it was him and two other partners. So it was a very small boutique merchant bank. And CFA is a global brand. So it's kind of like a franchisee, franchisor model. And these partners own the branch, work for themselves, right? And then they would give a split of all the deals up to the parent company for brand and shared resources and all that stuff. And so they hired me and it was probably the best opportunity I could have gotten way better than being at a large investment bank purely because I was in proximity with three senior partners and I got to sit in on meetings and deal pitches and, you know, whiteboarding out small businesses and turnarounds. And, you know, these guys took a liking to me and I would be, you know, every time they close a deal, they would get the scotch out in the, the boardroom, right? Yeah. And they would be like, tell me, what are you doing? I go, well, I'm just finishing the numbers on the Johnson project, sir. Ah, that's just bullshit. We, we don't really need you to do that. Come in here, have some scotch with us. We want to tell you about this deal we just closed. And so that, <laughs> I, I got to be the fly on the wall, right? It was such amazing experience. And going back to the entrepreneur stuff, Matt Register, the youngest partner there, he was ex-military. He had served in Iraq, right? And Afghanistan, right around 9-11. Incredible guy. But you want to talk about entrepreneurs, this guy is the real deal. I mean, and he is unapologetic. He is a, <laughs> in the investment banking world, you think about suit and tie and, you know, fresh haircut. I mean, he had a dip in his mouth, wore jeans, <laughs> but he was really good, a really good banker and entrepreneurial at that moment. And so they were a merchant bank that got into small, you know, oftentimes family owned businesses. And I got to just see how this guy's brain works. And so there's two moments on CFA I want to bring up that really shaped my career. One, Matt calls me and he's like, Hey buddy, you know, what do you want to do with your career? And where do you want to go? And I had no idea at the time. And I'm, I'm just, I forget what I said. It wasn't anything worth mentioning. And he's like, let me give you a word of advice. He goes, Larry's in his 60s. George, who's the other partner, George Walden, is in his 50s. And I'm 36. He goes, do you know why I'm a partner? He's like, it's not because of my good looks. Look, he's like, I'm a slob. Because <laughs> I took risks. And he's like, in life, he's like, and in business, if you look at what everyone's doing and you look at the ladder, if you can figure out a quicker way to climb up, always take the risk. And if you fall a few times, it's fine. But in the long run, when you work harder, mm. honestly, look at, look at it with that lens. He's like, you're always going to succeed faster and better than everyone else. And that got me juiced. I was like, I like that. Like, right. I wanted, like, and it's not to my detriment, but I just feel like 
if there's two ways to do it, the accepted way that's proven and a completely different way where it's completely uncharted territory, even if it's the same result in the same time frame and it's more pain and struggle and suffering to do it completely different, I'd rather do it completely different and own it because that just gets me going. It gets the juices going. Right. So that was really cool. So he made a big impact on me saying, I want to be different. I want to be entrepreneur. I want to, you know, test the waters and just stick out. Right. And I had another conversation with Larry Rogers and he was more kind of the, the father or the grandfather type figure, right? Very successful New York banker, well, well respected, very, very smart guy. He comes in, he's like, son, what do you want to do with your life? What do you want to do with your career? And again, don't think I said anything, you know, too profound in the moment. Yeah. He kind of leaned back in his chair and he's like, if I could do it all over again, I'd have an international career. He's like, the world of finance is so connected now. And he's like, when I was young, I would have loved to go to Singapore and live in Toronto and go to London. And then he said, London. And I'm like, yeah, I want to go to London. And I remember walking out of that. Never, I never traveled internationally as a kid. I think I went to one or two trips, you know, but for the most part, we went to Florida to visit grandparents. I traveled to Alabama or Massachusetts for a golf tournament. It was all domestic. And I walked out of that and I'm like, I want to have an international career. So this is now, fast forward, this is spring of 2011. So I'm graduating and I'm trying to get into a larger investment bank now. I have a year of being an analyst under my belt. And everyone at Rice, I, I connected with all the people who went into banking and lived in London. I got all those contacts and I, I interviewed them and had a chat with them. And I said, what did you do? And they're like, you just got to put your head down. You got to get into one of these big banks and then raise your hand after two, three years and say, I'd like a transfer. And they said, at your age, they'll pay for it. You'll have you know, great opportunity to make some good money and, and you get to see parts of the world. It's like, okay, that's what I'm going to do. Couldn't get into a big bank. Couldn't even get an interview. Again, same thing, right? I'm like, I'm like, you know, what am I going to do? And now I got to get a job, right? So now, you know, dreams are great, but you, know, you got to pay for rent and everything. And a buddy got me into, he was the Leland Richardson. He was the lead developer at a company called PLS. He was my roommate at Rice, super smart guy. He works for Google now. And he built at the time, you know, PLS is sold out to Inveris now, drilling and fill at the time. And they had a data arm and then they had a brokerage arm. And this guy was building all these data products. He had taken a year off of Rice to do this. And he knew me really well, right? We lived together. He's like, I've been telling the owner about you for years. He's like, with your personality, he's like, this guy is love. He's an entrepreneur, but he loves sales guys. He's like, he would hire you in a minute. It's like, okay, let me come in and and interview with them. And the whole parlay was the brokerage arm and, and my experience with CFA being a merchant bank. And I sat down with them and like in three minutes, he's like, okay, can you start tomorrow? And I'm like, wait, what? I remember I went in with professors and I was like <laughs> studying, like negotiating theory, like super academic, right? Like all these case studies on what to say and all these points. And this guy was just like, yeah, I need you to start tomorrow. Can you do it? And I was like, well, this is what I'd like for my starting salary. He's like, yeah, done. Good. We'll see you tomorrow. And I'm like, wait, what? Is that how it works? And, you know, Ronnie Wise, if anyone knows him, love or hate him. You know, <laughs> he's kind of a fly by the seat of your pants guy. And so I, I came in and I, you know, told CFA and they all wished me best to move on. And and then I started at PLS. And so I, it was weird because I was like, I really want this international thing. 
This is a small private company that's been focused on the U.S. for 30 years. I almost feel like I'm telling a girl, yeah, let's get into a relationship and get married, but I really am in love with somebody else. It's kind of how I felt. I felt conflicted. Yeah. And then two weeks later, I hear London, Yashadeep, one Derek, London, London. I'm like, London. So I pop my head into Ronnie Wise's office, and I'm like, sir, I don't know if you remember me, Tim Powell, you, you know, you just hired me. Keep hearing about London. What's this with London? It's like, oh, yeah, yeah. We just formed a partnership with a, a technology firm called One Derek Petroleum in India. And the part, my business partner, Yashadeep Diruhar, he's going to be in London all of May. So imagine I start in like second week of April. And he's going to be in London all of May. So I'm like literally like a week in the job. Yeah. And I, and I don't know what it was. I was like, does he have any meetings? He's like, no, it's a challenge. Like we literally have zero contacts internationally. I was like, well, I'll set up meetings for him. And he's like, you will? He's like, you know, London's six hours ahead. I literally didn't know time zones. I, I was that <laughs> ignorant. And I was like, yeah, sure. And he's like, you know, you're hired for a job. You're going to have to come in probably three, four in the morning. I was like, yes, sir. I'll do whatever it takes. And nice. I didn't know anything about the industry, but I was so excited. And, I, and this is before being able to like call from home. and do, Like I had to be in the office. I was going to call because it was international. Yeah. We had 10 contacts in the database at that time. And I kid you not, I was so fired up just to hear the British accent. At yeah. That time, <laughs> my, my dream wife was going to be Hispanic or British. That was the two roads I was going down. And at that time, I was like, I think it's going to be British, right? And I'm listening to these bits. Hello, good morning. And I'm like, this is the dream, right? And yeah. I'm cold calling. I don't know any of these companies. <laughs> but I was having a ball. And then I four or five hours would come by and then everyone would start coming to the office and then I'd go and I'd do my other job. And I set up Yashadi probably 40 meetings for May. And I kept thinking to myself, man, if I put in two to three years of hard work, maybe one day Ronnie will send me to London. This right. is my mindset. Yeah. And I came in, I said, so May passes. Yashadi had a really successful month, really opened up a bunch of doors. And Ronnie was just like, Timmy, I'm blown away. He's like, I'm so proud of you. You worked so hard. I got a surprise for you. I go, what's that? He goes, I'm sending you to London. And I was like, you got to be shitting me. <laughs> There's this, this new up and coming conference company called Oil and Gas Council. And I was a founding sponsor. And they're doing an event in London in mid-June. I'm sending you. And I, I mean, I was over the moon. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. It was amazing. And, I'm and like, how, how old are you at the time? 22. Oh, man. <laughs> you were probably... <laughs> we stuck a big title on me, like director of international, you know, because Oil Council, who I work with now, we're, we're all about, you know, senior level, right? That's our, our network. So I was gaming the system a little bit just with the title. Yeah. But I remember flying <laughs> over and I have maps of Africa and Europe. I'm trying to like learn the countries and I'm I'm being a quick study. I'm everything on the Oil Council website and the agenda. I'm studying everybody and the news and what the companies do because I literally know nothing. I mean, I've been in the industry for like three weeks. Right. And I was very <laughs> conscious. I was like, these are all going to be CEOs. I was, what are they going to want to talk to me about? And that kind of really sculpted my style of doing business, actually. It was a blessing in disguise going into that environment because I walked in. And I could see it in people's faces, right? People 30, 40 years my senior, like, oh, what are you doing here? Or like, what do yeah. you have to say? You're just a sales guy. Yeah. And I'll be like, oh, you know, John, congratulations on the deal last week. Or 
I saw you just did a financing. I, I just talked with Bob over there. It sounded like the deal was pretty innovative on the financing structure. And I just would just spew out as much information as I could remember. Yeah. And then they'd be like, oh, yeah, I'm Bob. Nice to meet you. Here's my card. And I just, I had to be overeducated for what my job, I mean, my job was to sell software in that context, right? Yeah. But I had to know more than needed to gain the respect and the credibility in this group because they were so senior. <laughs> yeah. Then that became my style just to be, you know, to really dive into the details and, and really develop a knowledge base that was pretty broad and covered a lot of, you know, a lot of companies and just to be knowledgeable. And that's how I built my relationships and built rapport with folks at a younger age. And fast forward, I did that for three years and I, Ronnie sent me everywhere, Hong Kong, Australia, Brazil, Colombia, wow. Canada, two, three times a month. I went to London eight times a year. I went to Nairobi, Kenya. I went to Cape Town, South Africa. It wow. was wild. I'm so grateful for that opportunity. And granted, I, I worked super hard, but you got to have the at-bat. And I'm just forever grateful to Ronnie for giving that to me. No and, kidding. And, and a lot of the events were oil and gas council events. And I would go somewhere for two weeks, have meetings before, go to the oil council event, have meetings after with the new people I met. And that's what I did for about three years. And we built a really strong international business. And then I met my now wife at the tail end of that. And I'm like, uh, I was in love and we were, wanted to get married and I wanted to have kids. And I'm like, man, this four weeks a month on the road, especially international, this is not sustainable. Like, you yeah. know, I see this lifestyle and my client base and it ends in two directions. It's like I was the virgin and you know I hadn't had sex with anyone else, right? From a career perspective. I was just like, man, is anyone else gonna want me? Like PLS loves me, Ronnie loves me, but I've never worked for anyone else. And so there's a bit of you know fear around that. And one company I was really close with were, was Oil and Gas Council. I knew all the founders, they're all younger. You know, work hard, play hard. I would go over and have meetings and network and everything and and then they were the only ones semi-close to my age. They were all in their 30s. So we used to go out and party. And I just developed a friendship. And I called uh, Vikesh Magdani, who's one of the, he who's the head of the Americas at the time in New York. I said, Vic, you know, he's like, Timmy, what's going on, man? I was like, I got some stuff, you know, coming up and thinking of a change. And, you know, would you guys ever consider having me on board? I really like your company and my network is your network and you see me in action. And it's the same thing as before, right? With CFA, he's like, can you start tomorrow? I was like, <laughs> really? And it was like a huge, you know, weight on my shoulders off. You know, that was almost seven years ago. And Vic's moved on. So I've been head of the Americas for about four to five years now. And it's just a great company. I've really enjoyed it. I think, you know, I'm not a conference guy. The Oil and Gas Council at its core puts on events. We've always been a bit unique in that we were more of a relationship broker. So we work with firms and, and vet the BD process and, and make connections and accelerate it. So we develop relationships with people. We get an understanding of their strategy and their investment needs. And are they entering into new basins or they have deals in the pipeline? And then we match up with folks around our events that we think are worthwhile to speak to. And then we I've always just enjoyed the proximity. I mean, our clients are the heads of PE firms, the heads of iBanks, the CEOs of companies, and the two most in powerful, influential sectors in the world, oil and gas and finance. And so as I've gone on, 
I just really enjoyed that because that's just who I spend my time with all day long are the smartest people in the room. And that rubs off on you, right? You start to think you have a better, a grander vision. And these clients have become friends. And as I am now a father and I have a family, you can relate to them in different ways. Yeah. And they become mentors as well. And you confide in them on, you know, thank opportunities that presented to you and how you're seeing the market and, and that I enjoy immensely. And, and so there was a inflection point, like probably two, three years ago where I'm like, shit, do I, do I need to get an MBA? Do I need to go so I can go into private equity or go into banking? Like if I stay, I love this company and I'm making more and more money every year and we're growing and my quality of life's incredible and I travel, but I don't need to travel all the time. So I get to have a bit of both. I can be with my family. But if I stay here too long, I might shoot myself in the foot. Mm. You know, am I going to, you know, kind of box myself into a career path? Because I'm not a confidence guy, right? Yeah. The longer I stay, the more of a network I have. And that's a currency that is probably the most important of, of all things. And that a real shift happened years ago. I started to get very, very close with one of our founders, Ian Pitt. And he's very entrepreneurial and loves to think outside of the box. You know, you're seeing some themes here with the people in my life, right? And yeah, we just started talking about the business and the future plans and innovation. And I very quickly realized the longer I stay here is the longer I have an education in building a small business, not about building a conference company. And that is kind of where I stand today. I don't know where the future will bring me. I definitely think that the skill set and the network I'm, I'm building will one day turn into, you know, cashing those skill sets and that experience into building a business. I don't think I'm the CEO of that business. I'm one of the partners contributing my skill set in that business, but mm. that's kind of what I settle on now. And in the interim, I'm just loving the ride with Oil and Gas Council. It's a great company and we're doing great things and COVID's been really difficult, but yeah, pivoting, right? We're pivoting. At the end of the day, it's all about adding value and we've been thinking about some out-of-the-box ways to add value to folks and continue helping them grow their businesses. And that's what I'm focused on today. And that's how the podcast came up. I've always wanted to do a podcast, but it was always, you know, you listen to different podcasts and you're like, oh, I like that. I don't like this. And you kind of, I said, if I was to do it myself, I would combine all the different things I like from these different podcasts and I'll do it in my own style and it'll be super fun. And then I, we have these incredible people in our network we could have some really kick-ass episodes with some really smart and innovative people. Yeah. But you travel and you're stuck in your normal business. And from the normal perspective, it was just like content for content's sake. And it didn't really have a, a real, there wasn't a defined reason for doing it. And so it always kind of fell to the wayside. So minerals and royalties within the U.S. has been a big focus of mine. And our clients are always saying, Tim, you, you always ask us, to make introductions for us. Want to know what would really move the needle? We want to meet family offices. We want to meet wealth advisors. We want to meet foundations and endowments and pensions that want to invest directly in this space, either into our funds or to buy our royalties assets and portfolios directly. You can find those folks. We'll love you to the moon and back. So that's a harder, that's a pretty hard task. It's easier said than done. Everyone in the royalty space wants those contacts. And it's really the universe is, is massive. It's like finding a needle in a haystack. Okay. It's anyone who looks for yield. And that can be 
real estate, you know, it's an endless supply of a pool of potential investors. So I sat back in February and I was like, one a good way to maybe get these people in our funnel, start a minerals and royalties podcast. And there's no content out there. So one thing we have that others don't, we have access to every mineral CEO in the country and we have relations with them for four or five years. Let me get them on to just talk about their companies and bullshit about the space. That in itself will be a library of content to educate investors who are interested in potentially entering the mineral space. And if they if their interest is peaked and they want to do homework, they have somewhere to do get some some intel and, and do some homework. Whereas before, you had the IR decks of four to five public companies in the mineral space, which quite frankly is only one slice of the pie, right? So that that was the concept, and we recorded seven or eight episodes. We're getting ready to launch, and okay, so you haven't actually launched yet. No, we have, but the launch was supposed to be in early March, and so it was a coincidence that everything with COVID happened, right? Yeah, and you know, I guess because the travel has been postponed, the events have been postponed, it enabled me to really focus more on the podcast and really focus on expanding it and doing more episodes more regularly. And I think that was probably a blessing in disguise because you could, instead of being, you know, kind of half doing it or being half pregnant, if you may, been able to focus more on it. And it's been great. It's gotten tons of traction, getting great feedback. Yeah. It's just, I'm excited to hear, you know, it's funny because I think a lot of people who start podcasts, they do it obviously because they enjoy it and they think there's going to be, you know, some good episodes and they might meet a few people. But I think the people that really put the effort in and leverage you know, the networking ability and capability of doing the podcasting, it blows any expectations out of the water. And so, you know, knowing what I know about you and what you do, and now adding this into your toolbox, I want to have a, a round two in a year from now. And you can tell me how you've just catapulted into whatever direction it is, because I think you're going to be overwhelmed and pleasantly surprised on the outcome. And so it's really interesting. I'm looking forward to listening to some because that the mineral and royalty space for me is something that's out of my wheelhouse. I mean, I'm an upstream drilling guy now is you know going back to school to understand business. And so it's, it's, I'm slowly entering, at least being interested in, in the more on the business side of, of our industry. And one of the questions actually I had lined up was, you know, with respect to mineral and royalty, right now, would you say, are there any attractive investment opportunities for the mineral and royalty space, given the current circumstance that we're faced with economically and, and with our industry the way it is? Yeah. So, you know, just kind of for those who aren't as familiar, just very, very high level minerals and royalties. If you want exposure to oil and gas, it's a non-cost barring investment vehicle to do so. So when you invest in a company, you have the exposure to the working interest costs, drilling and completion activity and, and ongoing operations. And you also get access to the upside, the revenue generation. In minerals, you are investing in the oil and gas in the ground. And when it's produced out, you get a share of that revenue. You don't have any exposure to the cost though. So that's attractive to, for a number of reasons. However, you don't have control. So that's the trade-off. You don't have control of your destiny. You're in the backseat of the car. You just want to make sure you pick a good car with a capable driver that's going in a direction you want it to be driven, right? So that's kind of very high level where it's at. When it was early March, and you talk about bringing it back to innovation and entrepreneurship and all that stuff, I'm sitting there, I'm like, okay, my job is to client face, interact with folks, add value and make connections to help their business. I overlook Latin America, Canada, and the US. 
it's a whole lot to overlook, but was able to do it because of the platform we had established. We're constantly hosting VIP receptions with 150 C-suite guys and girls. We were hosting 20 to 30 person CEO dinners once a week. I would be in Denver, then I'd be in Calgary, then I'd be in Rio. I was able to cover a lot of ground very, very efficiently, which was kind of uh, the platform we had established from a networking perspective, which we proposed to clients to help them. It was originally built to meet our own internal needs, right? So without that, I was left to just phone calls like everyone else. And I just said, I can't be all things to all people. The government situation in a lot of Latin American countries and just the COVID situation is really, you know, some folks can't even leave their homes, right? It's very, very strict. For anyone who thinks it's bad here in the U.S., try having kind of military lockdowns in certain countries where if you leave, you know, there's military patrolmen going around the streets just to prevent people from, you know, looting and everything. It's a different setup for sure. And so there's all sorts of reasons and then you lay in political cycles and elections and everything. So I was like, okay, for the most part, Latin America, going to put that on hold. You know, I'll keep in touch with certain key clients, but not a lot's going to happen. Canada, same thing. Very, very difficult. Canada's at the end of the, you know, the pipeline. There's all sorts of challenges with getting your stuff to market. There's big discounts. And as a result, you know, the, the economics of drilling are really, really challenged. And Right. I stay in touch with clients in Canada, but again, doesn't need to be a primary focus of my attention. And then that brings, that leaves the U.S. market. And we cover midstream services, upstream, and then within all that minerals. And I was like, man, what the, and this is early March, right? When we're kind of like, what the, what the hell's going on? Like, where's the world going to be? I mean, there's travel bans and restrictions and all this fear in the market. And I was like, with restructuring, with layoffs, there's just going to be so much uncertainty. And from what I do, where I'm talking to folks about their future plans, and we thrive on financing activity and A&D and drilling, it's not going to be a whole hell of a lot of that going on. I don't think it's a good use of my time to be calling on my normal clients. I think I need to wait. But why know it's going to be a really good use of my time calling on minerals and royalties clients. And why is that? Well, one, Minerals companies, for the most part, don't use any type of debt. So most of them don't have any type of debt covenants they need to service or anything of that nature. So restructuring from that perspective, not a factor. Two, they run very, very lean. They don't have thousands of employees. A large minerals company might have 20 employees, max. A lot of them will have four to five. And you could put a couple hundred million dollars to work with four to five employees. So all sorts of technologies you can lever, you can outsource a lot of stuff. So I knew from that standpoint, you know, layoffs and restructurings organizationally, not a factor. And then thirdly, from a deal flow perspective, you buy, you know, there are corporate to corporate deals and trades and everything, but you're buying for the most part direct from a mineral owner, which is your mom, my uncle, the guy who owns the corner store, you know, in the neighborhood, just ranchers it's it's individ, it's normal individuals not entities and corporations that themselves are going through restructuring so yeah. you can transact if someone is in yeah is in need of, of capital up front and wants to sell that market is available and if you have cash right now again going back to early march if theoretically i thought to myself if you have dry powder as a minerals company and now you know every minerals company always says 
the only time mineral owners let go of their minerals is when a life event happens. You lose a job, a spouse dies, health bills, your kid's getting married. You just, you need a surplus of, of cash in the short term, and then you, you liquidate your minerals. What creates life events? One, you know, oil and gas prices going down. If you're reliant to some degree on income from your royalty checks, and all of a sudden that income goes down 50%, Always, your, your lifestyle might be disrupted. And as a result, you may need that influx of cash to sell it in the short term to cover mortgages or whatever. So that's one thing that triggers it. So it's a great buying opportunity to buy through a downturn. Second is when, when people are in financial strain. Well, COVID-19 happened simultaneously to the oil price crash. So now you have people losing their jobs, tons of uncertainty. And you know this, it's not always rational behavior, but uncertainty and fear can drive certain decisions in the market all the time. And so you can have people letting go of their minerals for that reason to say, you know what, I'm not going to hold out for the best price. Like I don't want to sell my vacation home or I don't want to lose my home or I don't know if I'm going to be laid off in three months. Let me just shore up the financial situation of my family. It's a variety of factors, but those two things together theoretically could have created one of the best buying opportunities ever in minerals and royalties. Will this ever happen again? The double black swan event? Who knows? I don't have a crystal ball, but pretty interesting stuff, right? From a macroeconomic standpoint. So I said to myself, I'm going to call royalties companies because I think this is a good use of time. And you know, it was supposed to be a couple dozen calls has led to, you know, 200 plus calls with mineral CEOs last four to five months. I'm doing the podcast on top of that. Mm-hmm. We're doing minerals webinars. We partnered with a firm called Probus Energy Services and are co-branding their Pulse Reports, which has some really incredible minerals and royalties deal flow analysis in the reports. So we're doing all these different things in the mineral space on top of my calls. And it's just really plugging us into deal flow. Who has capital? Who's in between funds? Are people shifting to natural gas? Are they entering new basins? Are they tripling down? Are they standing back on the fence? What is private equity-backed company? How are they behaving? Pension fund-backed companies, how are they behaving? How are the public's behaving? Just talking to everybody, and I can fit those pieces together. And so what I've been doing since March is just being that sounding board for companies. Just, hey, I know we can't go to NAPE, and we can't go to the Patron Club and catch up at happy hours and just have informal you know, office meetings to pick up that soft market deal chatter that we normally do or you know, Justin, you and I might've met three years ago at NAPE and I know you and you know me, but I can't call you on a Saturday. Look, I don't know your cell. Like there's a lot of that. Like you talk about inner circle, then kind of your intermediate circle and then the people you don't know. From a BD perspective, it's a real tough one. If you don't have a relationship with someone, it's very difficult to talk to them right now. So yeah, I've been trying to you know plug in the missing pieces from a minerals perspective and an Intel perspective and just help people out and be like, you know, Justin, there's this fund, they have 10 million dry powder and they're entering the Delaware. You guys are in the Delaware, you have tons of deal flow, but you only have a couple million left in your fund. You guys should chat and do some club deals. Just a lot of stuff like that. And just trying to add value, right? And build up goodwill and help people out. And it's been fun. And that's kind of what I'm doing day to day now. I'm making it up as you go, right? Finding our feet, but it's been a good thing. And I've been enjoying it. And then along the way, it's just, the podcast has been helping with getting our brand out there and building credibility in the space. I think 
the conversations I'm having on the podcast are conversations I've been having for six years. They've always been behind closed doors. And to have a library now is amazing. Yeah. If you don't know us, you go to our website, you go, oh, it's a conference company. And I hate that. I'm always kind of trying to define that we're not that, that we're, we're really this more hands-on firm that cares about your company and wants to add value and make introductions strategically that can, can help enhance anything you're doing on the BD front or financing front. And having people listen to the conversations on the podcast has really mitigated that viewpoint of, oh, they're just a conference company. And they, the conversations I have right out of the bat are different. And so that I didn't foresee happening at all. And that's been a, a really, really cool thing. And then just, I think for the first time in my career, I'm experiencing the power of really good content marketing. You know, I hear about it with Gary Vee all the time, but the amount of organic leads and inbounds we're getting is mind boggling. And it's, it's pretty powerful stuff. And I'm excited about what the future holds for sure. Tim, I think we really just have really scraped the surface and I wish we could just keep wrapping along here. But unfortunately, I have another meeting I got to jump on to. But yeah, sorry for being a little long winded. No, but. no, this is, <laughs> hey, this is, this is what it's all about, man. I, I really genuinely wish we had more time. So we're going to definitely do a round two and I definitely want to meet in person. I'm a Katie resident as well. So probably just a, just a stone throw away. But what's the best way to, for people to reach out to you if they're interested in learning more or if they you know, have some something that they need to discuss with you, any opportunities? Is LinkedIn the place or, or do you have any preference where people can reach out to you? Yeah, you can go to our website, www.oilcouncil.com. If you're interested in checking out the podcast, just the simplest way is to Google the Minerals and Royalties podcast, Oil and Gas Council, Anchor, some sort of combination of that. You'll find it. Yeah. And then people can always email me, tim.powell at oilcouncil.com. Any one of those, will you'll find your way home. Well, I'll put all those links in the show notes. That way people can quickly access them. And man, until next time, like I said, it's been a pleasure. I'm excited to see what you're doing. Big thanks to Armin for hooking us up. And yeah, with that being said, man, all the best. And if there's anything I can do to help, you know, help create awareness around what you're doing, please let me know. No, Justin, it's been fun to be on the other side of the table here. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. And for sure. This is what it's all about. You know, we work with folks, but friendships and spending time with good quality people is the name of the game. And it's good to know you're only a couple minutes away whenever it's appropriate. We'd love to get the families together and Absolutely. barbecues and all that stuff for sure. Most definitely. Well, that's a wrap, everyone. And thanks for listening. Always remember when the density's up and the gas is down, open the choke. Let's go to town. This is Savannah, and here are the events on deck for September 2020. There's the FPSO World Congress 2020. And that's on September 1st to the 4th, and also the 8th, and it's all online. The next one is Building the Future Industrial Summit on September the 16th, and that's also online. There's also the 4th Annual Blockchain and Oil and Gas Conference 2020, and that's on September the 16th to the 18th. Then there's the End Genius Symposium and Exhibition for Upstream Innovation 2020, and that's September the 22nd to the 24th. And... There's also Effective Leadership Through Change and Uncertainty featuring Condoleezza Rice, and that's on September the 24th. There's also NAEP Summer 2020 from August 11th to September the 14th. And lastly, there's BP Week 2020, September 14th to 16th. That's all for September. I hope you guys have a great month and thanks for tuning in.
Thanks again for listening. Tune in next week for another episode of Oil & Gas Onshore, a production of Oil & Gas Global Network. For more information, visit OGGN.com.